the Bible reading tonight is uh, from Acts chapter 20, starting at verse 1. When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He travelled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people, and finally arrived in Greece, where he stayed for three months. Because some Jews had plotted against him, just as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. He was accompanied by Sopater, son of Purus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, Timothy also, Antiochus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas. But we sailed from Philippi after the festival of unleavened bread, and five days later joined the others at Troas, where we stayed seven days. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. Okay, that Bible reading tonight was for all of you who reckon I go on too long. <laughs> you know who you are. You know who you are. You know who you are, William Bailey. <laughs> How's that, eh? What a great story. It's one of my favourites. How about we pray? We bow your head. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful story, uh, this fantastic story of the spread of the gospel in Acts, and for this wonderful uh, short little glimpse into the life of the early church. We pray, Heavenly Father, thanking you that your spirit has power. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that we are not just gathered together today uh, like any other club in the Shire that might be meeting tonight. We are actually gathering uh, with Jesus, because Jesus said, when two or more are gathered in my name, then you're here in the midst of us. And Lord God, we thank you for your Holy Spirit that's at work in us to this day. And we pray that you will bless our time together as we unpack this passage tonight. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we chose that uh, reading tonight because it's a great reading and it's a great way to introduce the topic of what we're going to talk about tonight. And the topic that we want to talk about tonight is how do we read Acts? Now, we read all these stories in Acts like a young man falling asleep in a sermon. That's not too unusual. Falling from a third-story window to his death on the ground below, that's not unusual. But Paul going down and lying on him and him coming back to life again, that is unusual. How are we supposed to read that? What are we supposed to make of it? And more importantly, what is that meant to do for me today? How do I, what difference does that make to me as a Christian? Well, that's the question that I want to answer tonight as we actually do a bit of a flyover from Acts chapter 18 all the way through to the early part of Acts 21. And what we're going to look at is some of these stories tonight that you see in this account. And I want us to remember tonight that these stories of miracles and of power and of conflict and of faith are not happening in the boondocks of Galilee in the countryside with hayseeds and farmers. These very events that we're going to look at tonight take place in the metropolitan centres of the ancient world. This, this is too hard to hide, this stuff. 
Like this is the kind of stuff that people can't make up. So when Luke is writing this, he can't uh, but feel how amazing and important it is that people can't just glibly go, oh, I don't believe that. Because the people of the time who were receiving this account, many of them would have, if not been at some of these events, would have heard of these events. So this is a very public display of the power of the Holy Spirit that we see in Acts here tonight. And what we're going to do tonight is we're going to look at some of these stories. Paul does a sermon that goes too long. Someone falls asleep and dies and he is resurrected. But that's not all. In this section, there's some Jews who see the power of uh, Paul and his message and see the miracles that Paul's able to, um, to do in the name of Jesus. And even though they're not Christians, they start thinking, wow, maybe we could get in on this act. It's a bit of a circus trick. If we start trying to cast out demons in the name of Jesus, maybe we can get some money out of this. Like Maybe we can use this Jesus name because it's so powerful. But then we have a story of uh, Jews trying to cast some demons out of a guy and the demons beating the Jews up. Demons beating some guys up and stripping all their clothes off them for good measure and the guy's running down the street bruised and battered in the nude. You can't make this stuff up. But the, the book of Acts is full of hundreds of stories and it's affecting thousands of people. The coming of Jesus Christ has changed thousands of people's lives, even by this early stage. We're seeing in this book miraculous healing, supernatural gifts, like speaking in tongues, believers preaching the gospel with boldness in front of frantically furious people who hate them. And there's this beautiful outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And you know, as you read these stories in Acts, you can't but help think, wouldn't it be wonderful if some of this stuff happened today? Wouldn't it be wonderful in this secular, dry, spiritual place that we live here in Australia, if there was this refreshing outpouring of the Holy Spirit, a spiritual freshness that came back to our land, back to our communities, back to our households, our schools, and in our churches? Well, what's, what's the way to read this book? How are we meant to be encouraged by this? And what I want to do today is I want to say that there's probably two broad ways that you can read this story of the book of Acts. Now, for the last 30 or so years, people have been really tying themselves in knots trying to answer this question that I've asked tonight. Um, some people are saying, look, this is just a descriptive book, right? The book of Acts is describing the events of how the gospel has grown from Jerusalem to Rome. That's the purpose of the book. And that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Because we know from Luke chapter 1, verse 1, that Luke has said that this is the ongoing account that I started with my gospel, the story about Jesus, and now I'm going to talk about what Jesus did next. So it is a description of the journey of the gospel. And if it is a description, then we, we, we might be more likely to think that uh, less of this kind of activity is going to take place now because maybe it was peculiar to the place and time of, of the apostles. And there's a lot of merit in that actual uh, perspective, which we'll see in a sec. But the second perspective that I want to talk to you about is if, if Acts is descriptive, it also might be prescriptive. Now, what's the difference between descriptive and prescriptive? Three letters, if you're wondering. And the three letters of the word make a lot of difference because three letters... It, and I'm looking around at the English teachers here, they're nodding in approval, thinking, wow, Stuart, you're so doing so well today. You want what? Wow. See, here I am trying to big name myself, and then I just straight away <laughs> crash down to work. I don't even know what a mortograph is. 
But it sounds good, eh? It sounds good. Well, anyway, let's move on, shall we? The prescriptive, the prescriptive word is, is what's being written meant to happen now? That's basically prescribe something. So if a doctor prescribes medication, the doctor expects you to take it, right? So is Acts describing the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem to Rome? Or is the book of Acts prescribing how the early church used to be and we should be like that now too? So some of the heartfelt discussions that have been taking place in the church over the last 30 years are things like we read about people being um, baptised in the Holy Spirit, is that something we should do today too? Should we not only baptise people with water, but should we baptise them by the Holy Spirit? Should we expect more miracles of healing? Should we have more demons being cast out in churches? And as you know, probably even broadly, even if you're not really familiar with this debate, you'll know that there are lots of different church expressions around Sydney and different churches come to different conclusions. But what about you and me? What's the conclusion we're going to make tonight? Well, I want to suggest a good principle tonight to interpret Acts is that we interpret it um, as predominantly descriptive, but it's also prescriptive as well. I'm having a bit both ways. You like that? (laughs) Basically, though, what I want to say today is we're not commanded by the book of Acts to copycat anything the Bible describes unless it is prescribed by the teaching as a timeless truth. Okay? So unless the Bible describes something as a timeless truth, it's not prescribing that we should actually endeavour to see that happen in our life as well. So for a good example would be from the Gospel of Jesus... Jesus walked on water. I don't meet many Christians who expect to walk on water because they're followers of Jesus. Because there's a common sense to the fact that he is God and he walked on water to show his uniqueness. There was a purpose in him walking on the water. And look, if God wanted me to walk on water, I could walk on water if that was his purpose. But it it makes sense to me that Jesus was showing he's not like just anybody else. When the disciples were casting out demons like Jesus did, It makes sense for me to realise that they had authority that other people didn't have because they were followers of Jesus. And then when Paul comes along, he is like one unnaturally born, as he says, because he didn't see the living Jesus and talk to him and be his follower. He met the resurrected Jesus. So it was really important, I think, that the Holy Spirit denoted the importance of Paul's authority as well. So there is a descriptive sense that we aren't meant to emulate. I mean, many of the things that apostles did were unique. So, for example, Paul wrote most of the New Testament. I don't see anybody here thinking, I'm going to add a book. Because that's a description, isn't it? That, that's what happened. So that's, that, that's the kind of idea. So a way to approach this, in other words, is that we interpret the descriptions in the book of Acts in the light of what the Gospels and the epistles describe, right? So this is the fun bit. So what we do is God's given us all minds, hasn't he? And he's given us minds so that we can think. And he's given us a few pastors who can put aside a few years to study this stuff a little bit more than everybody else has time to do to try and help everybody else to kind of get their head around it too. So the, the idea is that you can read the Bible for yourself. Because if you can read the Bible for yourself and you don't need me or someone else to explain it to you, you're free. Now people have died for that principle. Even before the Reformation, there was a group called the Lollards who were so committed to translating the Bible into English that they did it despite the fact that they were told, we will kill you if you translate the Bible into English. And they did. They, they translated it. And so this principle of you being able to think is really important. 
Because the Holy Spirit is going to help you as you think about the text to understand whether something is prescriptive or descriptive. And that is very exciting. Because as you read the scriptures, you get an idea of who God is from the descriptions of his awesome power. And then there's prescribed responses that you can read in the Bible for yourself that can help you to be an authentic follower of Jesus. And so as we come to this today, we are witness to this foundational sense that the apostles were different. But we can share in the task of the apostles. Paul has a unique calling to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And he goes about his business with a great deal of sobriety, confidence and joy. However, even though we are not an apostle, we can still carry on the testi- and testify and witness to the redemptive message of Jesus ourselves. And the prescription for Acts today is don't stop talking. And that's why I thought that passage tonight was a terrific example. Because there's a prescription for us. <laughs> Maybe talk so much sometimes that you put people to sleep. Now that's a little bit of a radical idea in our world today because I think for the last 30 years it's become fashionable for Christians to start thinking that people get offended when we talk about Jesus. So maybe we should talk about Jesus less and live for him more. And lots of people I talk to who are Christians say more and more, I don't even have to tell people about Jesus because my life is my gospel witness. Now that is good, it is true. Your life is a gospel witness. But if you don't explain your gospel witness, then people don't know the Jesus who is behind your life. And so the tremendous thing about understanding what is the difference between description in the Bible and prescription is how do we take up the story of Paul and carry it forward in our generation? How do we do it individually and collectively? Well, let's go into the passage. Uh, Paul in Corinth, um, I, I am aware of time too tonight. We've started the sermon a little late, but it's going to be a shorter sermon tonight. You can start timing, Liam, and tell me if I was right later. The <laughs> we, 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 can, we see Paul in Corinth here. If you've got your Bibles open, turn up. Uh, to Acts chapter 18 verse 3 because we get this terrific picture of and we meet this terrific couple uh, that Paul meets in Corinth called Priscilla and Aquila. Now Priscilla and Aquila are business people, they're a a husband and wife partnership and they're two profoundly important Christian leaders in the church and they've actually fled from Rome under the persecution of Claudius and they've come to Corinth and they've taken up their trade and Paul comes along and it just so happens that Paul is a tent maker. So Paul comes along and he gets a job with Priscilla and Aquila and he starts making tents. Now, straight away in the story, this is a great example of the principle we have tonight. Is this prescriptive or is this descriptive? Paul is a pastor. Should pastors be set aside by the congregation through their donations to not have to work so they can read the Bible and pray and preach? Or should pastors actually make their own money? That's a really good question. And different churches come up with different answers. The Anglican church, on the whole, uh, has the former, I think, the one that says that we pay ministers. However, my friends in the Brethren Church are so passionate about this passage, they think this is prescriptive and that we shouldn't pay pastors at all because they should be tent makers. And actually, that has become common parlance in the evangelical church amongst people who talk about ministers who actually work for their own living called tent makers. 
So should pre preachers uh, do that? Is it prescriptive or is it descriptive? Well, let's have a look at, like I said, one of the epistles and see if we can get some heads up from that. Paul himself says to the Thessalonians, for you yourselves know, in Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 7 to 10, for you yourselves know that you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, labouring and toiling, so that we would not have to be a burden to you. We did this not because we have not the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. That's interesting, isn't it? For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. So what Paul's saying there is, look, we actually have a right to be paid because we're working for the Lord and we're working for you. But because we wanted to be gentle and not put too much pressure on you as a community, we actually chose to work. In Acts chapter 20, verse 34, we see this. Paul says, You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. Yet, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 18, it says, For Scripture says, Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. The worker deserves the wages. So what are we to make of that? Well, in chapter 18, verse 5, when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. So isn't that interesting? There's two things there that Paul is saying are completely appropriate. And in fact, in our reading tonight, in chapter 18, we actually see Paul working and also then relying on the goodness of the community. Now, remember Jesus. There isn't any description of him working at all through the whole of the gospel. But yet, before he started his ministry, we know he was a carpenter. So even Jesus worked and also laid aside. So what you see there is this isn't prescriptive in the sense that because Paul was working with tents that we should always do that. What Paul's saying is don't make a moral decision from your own point of view, but make a loving decision. A moral decision would be you always do this or you always do that. A loving decision says love might necessitate different things at different times. An example is when Paul and Timothy went to Ephesus even though Paul had been saying you don't have to be circumcised to be a Christian, we looked at that a couple of weeks ago, when he took Timothy to Ephesus, he had Timothy circumcised so that there wouldn't be an argument amongst the Jews. Because if they went to Ephesus and spent their whole time arguing about circumcision, they wouldn't have time to talk about the gospel. Is that prescriptive or is that descriptive? Well, it's definitely descriptive, but there is a prescription in there, which is, Love necessitates different action sometimes in different contexts. Now, that doesn't mean that you deny the gospel for love. But what it means is you don't cause offence yourself. Only the gospel should cause offence. Does that make sense? You shouldn't yourself cause offence to someone. Only the gospel should cause offence. So if it's all possible for you to live in harmony with others, do so, Paul says. So an example of that for me in my life is in the 90s, I had the longest hair I'd ever had. And I went down below my shoulders and I used to love having long hair. And then I met my Aboriginal friends and I was invited out to Bawarana and I went out there and spent the whole weekend talking about whether men should have long hair or short hair. And I came home and I spoke to my Bible college lecturer, what should I do? And he, said, he told me the story of Paul and Ephesus. He said, do you think that might be a good model for you? I said, that's a great idea. So I went and cut my hair off. So the next time I went out to Bawarana, I didn't have to talk about hair. We talked about the gospel all weekend. 
And I think that's what's going on as you understand how to read the Bible. You start to make those decisions and that's a really helpful thing. Well, we see Priscilla and Aquila, they keep working. Now, I want to make a point here. There's a big discussion at the moment in our communities about whether um, we put too much emphasis on people going into full-time ministry. There are some that say we should put more emphasis on it and get more pastors into ministry. Uh, currently at Moore College, there's only seven graduates from fourth year in Moore College, and there are a lot more jobs than there are graduates. So there are a lot of ministers who are out there saying to their congregations, come on, let's get more people into full-time ministry. But then some of the pushback on that, and rightly so in some cases, is do we put too much emphasis on full-time ministry? Shouldn't we also say to people at school, people at work, people in the homes, that that is also a really thoroughly gospel place to have a ministry? Well, I want to say yes, because again, the description in this passage is that Paul, not only Paul does Paul work and sometimes not work, but Priscilla and Aquila, after Paul stops working to focus purely on full-time ministry, Priscilla and Aquila keep working as business people. So the encouragement to you if you're a business person today or at school, that is a terrific place to be a Christian. And when you are in that place, do the same thing you would do if you were not in that place. Does that make sense? If someone says to you, hey, what should I do in the workplace? Same thing you do if you're in full-time ministry. The thing about full-time ministry is the only benefit to it is that you get a bit more time to do it. Plus, you don't have as many things curtailing you. Again, when I was a tutor at New South Wales University in political science, I was tutoring people in uh, Marxism and feminism. And in my Marxist classes, I often got my students saying, do you believe this stuff? And I would look at them and smile, and then they'd say, what do you believe? And I'd smile, and, and they'd keep pestering me, what do you believe, what do you believe? And I'd finally say, well, I'm a Christian. And so I think Marxism's a little bit utopian because it neglects human sinfulness. It kind of assumes that if you create a perfect society, then that society will create perfect people. But in my mind, no matter what you do in society, it's still going to be flawed because we are flawed. And the only person who has a solution to the world's ills ultimately is Jesus Christ. My lecturer calls me in. He had a complaint. Stuart, what are you doing proselytising in your class? I'm just answering questions. And he would say, Stuart, you can't preach the gospel in a Marxist tutorial. <laughs> and I said, actually, Prof, can I push back on that? You're saying I can't keep doing that because I've already done it. <laughs> he did laugh at that. It wasn't being completely rude. But that just gives you an idea that you don't want to go too far to one extreme or the other because Priscilla and Aquila in chapter 18, verses 18 to 28, look what they're doing. They're making tents. But then as Paul's moved on to Ephesus, this young preacher called Apollos comes along. Uh, he's mentioned in Corinth as a real super preacher later on. But when he starts out, he's a bit rough and ready. You know what young preachers are like? They're full of passion, but sometimes they don't have a lot of knowledge. And poor old Priscilla and Aquila could have just told this Apollos guy just to bag his head. You're just hopeless. But they say to him, hang on, why don't we get beside this young bloke? Have him over for dinner. Let's get our, our, our arm around his shoulder and help him. Because it turns out from the passage that Apollos has only heard about the gospel through John the Baptist's disciples. So he's up there preaching about Jesus, but he doesn't know Jesus has died on the cross and risen from the dead. Whoa, that's a little bit important. Now, Priscilla and Aquila could have said, you're an idiot, shut up. <laughs> but they saw something in him, didn't they? Can I encourage you, if a young preacher ever gets up 
or a young Bible study leader ever gets up or a young leader ever gets up or a young youth leader or a kids leader, whoever it might be, and they say something dumb, please don't have a go at it. It crushes them. Put your arm around them. Remember Priscilla and Aquila and encourage them to grow in their knowledge and actually help them to learn to read the Bible for themselves too. Because you see the principle, if they can read the Bible for themselves, they'll become a great preacher. I remember when I first preached my first message, it was terrifying. It was to an 845 service of people who were all over 80. And they'd been Christians for 60 years. I'm like, what have I got to say to these people? And I was right. Because as I walked out, I had to shake hands with everyone. I stood at the door and I had to shake hands with everyone as they walked out of the church. And they all told me that I didn't do a very good job. But they did it in a really nice way. It was things like Dr. Bonamy, who's turning 102 in two weeks or something. Who, by the way, has invited all of us to his birthday party. That'll be for another time. I'll tell you about that at Guymer Anglican Church in a couple of weeks. But 102, he was only 80-something when I first met him. And he walks out and he said, young man, you said guys 14 times. <laughs> I'm like, wow, that was his feedback. <laughs> and then that week he invited me around for a cup of tea. He was uh, Priscilla and Aquila to me with him and his wife. And as he and his wife sat me down, they said, how about we help you with this? Isn't that lovely? See, we're all so busy, we don't have time for each other. We're all pleasant strangers with people who are different to ourselves instead of deep, abiding friends. So whether we're paid to do ministry or not, we can all have an impact. It says in 8.26, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. Dr. Bonamy and Mrs. Bonamy. And, you know, in the weeks and months and years, actually, (laughs) that followed, me and Doctor had a little laugh every time I preached at the 745 service. He'd tell me how many guys I said, until I finally didn't say one guys. Because the way I'd say it is, hey, guys, what do you think? Or these guys were saying that. And and he was saying, I think it's okay for you to say that, but there's older people here who, who get a little bit, you know, overwhelmed by words like that, and they'd rather it to be simpler. Now, there's lots of other stories in this passage. Paul in Ephesus meets more disciples of John the Baptist. We see Paul and his miracles. We see the sorcerers. We see Paul in Troas that we heard the reading from. But I want to finish tonight, because we don't have a lot of time to unpack some of these terrific stories, by just looking really briefly at the riot at Ephesus. And I'll tell you why in a minute. But before I do, cast your mind back 2,000 years to this event. Paul is in Ephesus, he's teaching the gospel, and the metal workers are angry because their business is going down. Wouldn't it be wonderful if the church grew so much that some businesses started to go down because people didn't want to do it anymore? You know, in the Welsh revival in the 1800s, they had to lay off police because there wasn't as much crime because so many people became Christians. They closed football clubs because people got bored of going to the soccer because they wanted to go to church. They closed down pubs because people stopped drinking because they were tuned on by the Holy Spirit, not the Spirit. It has happened before, and do you know what? It will happen again because the gospel is growing and is powerful around the world. But there will be opposition. I just want to encourage you that this is not prescriptive and it's descriptive of what happens to to those who teach the Bible. But let's just enjoy this description before we finish. 
In verse 32 of chapter 19, the assembly, by the way, this is what's happened. This guy, this middle maker who's making idols is like running, his business is going down because all these people have become Christians and stopped praying to pieces of wood and steel. So he gets all the other metallurgists together and he gets everyone together. He gets a big crowd together and they all storm in and they're all rioting in the city. You know, I'd imagine myself in a riot. I wouldn't mind a good riot once in a while. I wouldn't want to hurt anyone or wreck anyone's buildings, but I'd love to run down a street with a plastic chair and just go, ah! <laughs> That'd be fun, don't you? Brad's nodding. <laughs> well, this is what happened in chapter 19. It's exactly this kind of riot. Chairs. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most people did not even know why they were there. <laughs> Isn't that a great riot? Let's have a riot! Why are we rioting? I don't know! That's what's happened. But isn't that a message of a lost world? People are so upset at the Christians, but some of them don't even know why they're upset at the Christians. It's just, that's what we do, isn't it? We get upset at the Christians. So can I just encourage you with one final thing tonight? If anyone opposes you for the gospel, they probably don't know what they're doing. Remember Jesus on the cross? He's been nailed to a cross. And he looks down and he says, Father, forgive them. Why? Why does he say that? Because they don't know what they're doing. Paul's method in the book of Acts is to show us that what is prescriptive in the Bible is to share the word of God in season and out season. Just keep telling people, just keep telling them about Jesus. Because after all, that's how Jesus started his ministry and Paul finished. Let me finish with this. Mark chapter 1, verse 15. The time has come, Jesus said. The kingdom of God has come near Repent and believe the good news. If you sometimes don't know what to share with someone else, that's what you share. That's the simplest message of the gospel in scripture from the mouth of Jesus himself. And in Acts chapter 20, verse 25, this is what we read. Now I know that none of you among you that I've gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. He's talking to the Ephesians because he's about to go to Jerusalem. But I'll leave you in God's hands, he goes on to say. And he'll look after you. Isn't that wonderful? Sometimes I have talks with people and they go, there's some people who are just so far away from the kingdom they're just impossible to reach. One of those old ladies that used to shake my hands at Glamour Anglican Church once told me that when I became youth minister. She said, Stuart, no teenagers in Solon Shire who don't already go to church are going to come. They're all lost. They're too far away from the gospel. And I just thought, no, they're not. And seven years later, there were 500 of them in our church. Don't let the past be prescriptive for your future. Let the Bible be prescriptive for your future. Just because you haven't witnessed lots of people become Christians doesn't mean it's not going to happen. So this year, let's get bold, let's get confident, let's get joyful, and let's just step little bit by little bit into this. Let's change our stance from stepping backwards from culture to just carefully and humbly stepping forward, walking forward, slowly but surely, put our arms around people who might be a bit rough around the edges. And I'm one of them. I'm still rough around the edges and I'm 54. Let's love each other and help each other share this message because this is the message that our country needs. Amen.